flesh is as grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's give our attention to God's word in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You have it printed for you in your order of worship. If you're wanting to turn there in your Bible and your copy of God's word, Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament just after Proverbs and just before Song of Songs in our English Bibles. Um, Ecclesiastes is a unique portion of Scripture. Um, in Scripture, we find different genres of literature. And so, kiddos, what that means is genre is just a fancy word to mean it's a different kind of something to read. So a few weeks ago, you may have received a Valentine's Day card. I received a Valentine's day card from my wife, Jessica, and I loved receiving that card, and I read that card in a very different way from when I read the grocery list she sends to me, or when she forwards me an email with instructions about one of the boys' baseball practice. Those are different kinds of writing, and so knowing what it is helps me understand how it's to be read. Well, when we come to scripture, the same is true. All of it is God's word. All of it is true and trustworthy and without error and will not err. And yet it's given to us in different genres. And so some of it is narrative. It's the telling of a story. Some of it is songs. Some of it is given to us in Proverbs. Some of it is given to us in letters. And portions of us are given to us in very unique forms of literature, and that's the case with Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, King Solomon is demonstrating for us the limitations of what people can figure out on their own. He's writing from a first-person perspective as a teacher as though he is limited to human reason and human ability to observe, and that's to lead us to cry out for God's help that we might receive God's wisdom and not be limited to our own wisdom. So just as Chris has already uh, asked, let's go once more and ask God's help on the reading, preaching, and hearing of his word. Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you that you're not silent. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself even more than what your creation reveals. We know that um, what you've created testifies to your invisible attributes, but it cannot tell us how we can be made right to you. And we, we know just from what we can observe that something is wrong in this world and we need your help to know what it is. We need your help to know how it is reconciled. We know that that is what you do for us in your word. So we ask as we give our attention to your word, we ask that you would help us to understand what we read. We ask that you would help the preacher to preach it well. We ask that you would help us all to hear it with ears of faith, that we would understand and that we would believe, that we would respond in joy and obedience to the glory of Christ, our Lord, for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 through 12. 
There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, kids, I don't know if you guys stick around on the Zoom call after worship is over, but if you do, and if you were to get my kids to unmute their mic and you were to ask them, what is an adult? They might define adulthood this way. They might say, being adult, being an adult means you get to eat whatever you want. Because what happens a lot of nights in the Morgan household is we hurry up and we get the kids in bed and then we snack. I say we snack. I shouldn't tell other people. I snack. Everybody knows I'm the biggest snacker. If the ice cream goes missing, they're like, daddy ate the ice cream. And if the chips go missing, like daddy ate all the chips. And I don't do that every night. I snack a lot of nights, but some nights, even though I've had a really big supper, I'll go back in the kitchen and I'll think, you know, just something a little sweet would be really good. And so I'll pour a bowl of my favorite sugar uh, cereal and I'll put some milk on it and I'll eat that cereal. And I realize, gee, I was hungrier than I thought. Maybe what I need is something savory. And so I'll go get a handful of mixed nuts and I'll eat some mixed nuts. And I'm like, I need something with a little zing and I'll get some pickled peppers and then I'll get some cheese. And then I'll think, well, I've had another meal. I should have some more dessert. And then I'll get some ice cream. And then I'll feel terrible. And I'll be stuffed to the point that I'm going to burst. And I'll feel terrible. And I'll realize the next morning when I look at my desk and I see my water bottle is half full, I'll realize that the problem was I wasn't hungry. I was thirsty. I don't know if you know this, but one of the things that happens when your body gets thirsty is sometimes it can feel hungry, but it's a confused feeling. Our bodies are built to have a certain amount of water each day, and sometimes we even need more because of activity, but sometimes we fail to give our bodies what they need 
because we misunderstand what it is that we long for. Now, this is a pretty good picture of what's going on in this text that we just read. So if you listen to me read those Bible verses, they may have been confusing and hard to understand. Here is the main thing that we should learn from this text is that we are built for something. Just like our bodies need water and they crave water as we're thirsty. All of us is built for something and we crave that thing. And we misunderstand what that thing is and what this text should teach us. What these verses I just read should teach us is that true satisfaction is found in God alone. True satisfaction is found in God alone. Now, I know that that word satisfaction maybe is still a big word. And if you can keep listening through the sermon, maybe, maybe all of us, I'm still learning what that word means too. Maybe all of us can learn what that word means so that we will seek true satisfaction. We'll only find it in God alone. True satisfaction is found in God alone. In this text, lots of things we can learn, but three um, elements of this text teach us ways that we seek satisfaction wrongly. So let's look at those together. If you look back at those first couple of verses, um, they start out saying there's a big problem. So in the translation that I read, it uses the word evil. Now, this is an, an old use of the English word evil. Um, it doesn't mean that God is doing something immoral. It means there is a tragedy. There is a tragic dynamic to human life. And here it is. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. Now, he's going to give a specific example, but he's saying it affects everyone. So he's going to give us a specific example to imagine and says, that's what it's like for you, too. And here's the example he gives in verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Now, kids, you maybe have never heard these verses before, but your, your moms and your dads, the adults in the church, they've probably read parts of Ecclesiastes before, and if they have, they know that word vanity pops up a lot. There's this refrain that occurs throughout the book. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word vanity means futile. In the original language, it's the same word that's used for breath. It's like, what did that accomplish? It's gone in an instant. It accomplished nothing. And so if we're not careful, if we're not careful, when we read this book of Ecclesiastes, we may be led to despair. We may say, why bother? If it's futile, if it doesn't matter, if it accomplishes nothing, if it's just vanity, why bother? And the teacher, the one who's speaking here, is saying, that's what, that's what consumption is like. One of the ways that we try to get satisfaction in life is we try to consume things. We try to get things that we can have. Um, oftentimes, it's tangible things. So a few months ago, I, I crashed my mountain bike, had a really bad crash. I broke my leg and, 
and eventually had to have an amputation of my lower left leg. And so until just recently, I've been on crutches for weeks and weeks and weeks on crutches. And, you know, I knew that our house was of modest size for the number of people who live here. But I knew that we had been trying to clean out some of our possessions and not be so cluttered. Well, let me tell you, if you want to know exactly how many possessions you have, try getting around your house on crutches all the time. Suddenly you'll discover there's junk everywhere. At least that's how it is at our house. We acquire lots and lots of possessions. And possessions by themselves are not bad. They're good things. But they can't satisfy this deep longing that we have. They're not the thing that we're built for. Sometimes we try to satisfy our deepest longing with food. So uh, every once in a while, I actually get to travel to Portland. I used to live a couple hours south of Portland, just below Eugene. And after I moved away, I would sometimes travel back to see family. And I would always try to visit the newest restaurant I'd heard about. Not that it was a new restaurant. It was just new to me. And so I remember on one trip with my wife, I'm so delighted to discover that Eugene had gotten a Voodoo Donuts. We had to go get Voodoo Donuts. We got the big pink box stuff full of donuts. And I remember on one trip, I was out there for a conference. I'd kind of gotten into coffee and I heard Stumptown Coffee. That's the coffee you got to have. You can't get Stumptown in Mississippi. You actually can get it now. So I guess they sold out. But I, had, I was so excited to go to Stumptown. And adults, you know, um, whether it's Portland or even in Mississippi, there are people who build their lives around consuming the finest food. So sometimes we try to seek satisfaction through tangible things that we can consume, but there are also intangible things that we try to acquire for ourselves to satisfy our deep longing. So our reputation, we want to be known as the highest selling sales rep or the person who knows what they're doing at the office or the mom who has it all together or um, the person who's most concerned with social justice, whatever it is, we try to acquire a name for ourselves or we try to um, get in with the cool kids. If we could just achieve a certain social stature, maybe then we would feel satisfied. But the first lesson in this text is that we cannot be satisfied through consumption. True satisfaction is found in God alone. There's a second way this text points out that we try to seek satisfaction wrongly, and that's actually through contribution. Now, that one will take a little explanation, but look at these verses. Look at verse three. The teacher says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Now, uh, there's a very real sense in which having children in ancient Near Eastern culture was sort of like um, acquiring something for yourself, living for yourself, because in the ancient Near East, um, having a lot of children was a great honor and a practical help. 
because in the ancient Near East, the, the place and time that this was written, uh, your children were your labor force. If you were going to eat next winter, it's because you and your sons got out in the fields and because um, your daughters helped care for your home and helped gather those things in and store them safely. And if an enemy came against your town, you didn't call the police, you didn't call the National Guard, you woke your sons and you said, take up arms, we're, we're being attacked. And so it was good for you, but it also was good for your community. And so children were not merely something to satisfy yourself. They were a way to give back to the community. A family that was large was a blessing to their community. And I want us to think about that aspect, that not only can we not find um, satisfaction in, in, in consuming the things we imagine for ourselves, we can't find true satisfaction in giving back. We can't find satisfaction in consumption. We can't find satisfaction in contribution. And there's lots of ways that we try to do that. We try to do the right thing. So, yes, it feels nice for us if we have a good reputation, but, but there are also uh, times when we genuinely want to help our neighbor. Maybe we feel a deep conviction about the way we take care of God's earth, and we're very careful to recycle, and we're very careful about how much we purchase. Maybe you don't live in a cluttered house like the Morgans. Maybe you're very careful about um, how much uh, carbon fuel, carbon-based fuel you consume. Or there are lots of ways that we try to give back. And all of them kind of boil down to us wanting to be a good person. And the teacher here says, you won't find satisfaction that way. He's not saying don't be a good person, don't misunderstand, but he's saying. It's not going to fulfill you. It's futile. What will it accomplish for you? So then there's a third way that he offers. You can't find true satisfaction in consuming according to your own imagination. You can't find true satisfaction contributing according to your own imagination. So maybe there's this third alternative. Um, look at verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. So he's pointing out, again, primarily the text is talking about consumption, but con contributions in there too. So again, he's returning to consumption. He's saying, what do you actually acquire for yourself? What does it actually get you? Better the sight of the eyes. Better what you already have in your hands, the possessions that you already have. Maybe it's better to learn contentment than to continue to pursue your wandering appetite, whether it's an appetite to live for yourself or an appetite to live for others. Maybe what you really need to do is just dial it down a little bit. Lower your expectations. If you could figure out how to be content with what you have, maybe that would do it. But I'm using the words satisfaction and contentment in two different ways here to help us see what's going on in this text. The word satisfaction is for that deep longing to be met. And I'm using the word contentment this way, to live as though you are satisfied. The deep longing has not been met, but you're living as though it has been met. But look at the very last bit of verse 9. 
This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Even trying to live as though we're satisfied when we're not, trying to practice contentment, even though we're trying to do that, it won't solve the big problem. Because true satisfaction is found in God alone. That's what this text should be pointing us to. And so let's see our jumping off point for coming to that conclusion. Look at these last verses here, verses 10 through 12. Whoever has come, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So here um, he's saying something similar to another refrain. If you read much of this book, not all of you heard vanity of vanities, but you've also heard this phrase: there is nothing new under the sun. And when he says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. He's saying the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. The people who've come before, the people that our great, 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 great granddaddy and grandmother knew and forgot way back, as far as can be imagined, they experienced the same dynamic, the same tragic situation. They named this long before we came along. There's nothing new under the sun. And by now we know what mankind is, what men and women are, what boys and girls are. They're creatures with limitations. And how can a person fight with one who is greater than he? And so he says in verse 11, it gets worse. Not only do you have limitations, not only can you not overcome this tragic situation, but it's worse. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? It's like he's saying to himself, why am I even bothered? The more I speak, the more I'm wasting my breath. It's futile because, verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Since we can't imagine a thing to consume which will actually satisfy we cannot imagine a contribution which is sufficient to satisfy that deeping longing within us. And we can't hack the system by just trying to be content, pretending we're satisfied. Who can say what's good? That's pretty bleak, isn't it? But that should be a clue to us because we didn't get this text in isolation. It didn't come to us in the mail as just one little sheet of paper with a few verses on it. This comes to us as part of God's word. So let's think about these last two questions that the teacher asked here in verse 12. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? It's the one who is not limited to what can be known under the sun. There's this um, wonderful reality in Hebrew. So the, the Bible, the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that we're reading was originally written in ancient Hebrew, not English. Go figure. And when you read the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, there's something that comes through a little more clearly than it does for us in English. And that is when God is referenced as the maker of the heavens and the earth, it's not just saying he made the stars and the sun and the planets. It's saying he made the unseen as well as the seen. 
So when the teacher in this book is talking about life under the sun, he's talking about life with the limitations of what is seen. But there is also the unseen. And there is one who is maker of all that is seen and unseen. And he can tell us what is good for man. And he can tell us what will come after us, after this life. And there's good news for us in what he says. In another part of God's word, in Isaiah 55, we hear these words, Come, everyone who thirsts, do you have longing? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, who cannot make a contribution, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now, the one who wrote the verses of our primary text here in Ecclesiastes is a son of David, literally Solomon, the son of David. And the Bible says that God gave Solomon great wisdom. He made a lot of mistakes, and yet he had great wisdom. And Solomon is wise enough, wise enough to recognize he is not the one that's spoken of in God's word when God's word speaks of David's son. There's another who can do what we cannot do. See, there actually was one who preceded David long ago. There was one who was made to consume. And the thing that he was made to consume that would actually satisfy him was not a thing, but a person. It was God himself. You see, when God made our first father, Adam, he told Adam, you are to enjoy me. And you are to enjoy my good gifts in a way that brings glory to me and helps you enjoy me. So God said to Adam, I want you to tend my good earth and I want you to fill it up with children. And you can eat from any of these trees of the garden except for the one. And God walked with him in the cool, the still of the day. Adam and all those who come from Adam are built to enjoy God. And here's something that's amazing. God built Adam to make a contribution. God said to Adam, tend my good earth and fill it up. Adam, I've given you work that matters. And the, the wonderful thing is that consumption and contribution aren't these separate things, but they actually go together. Adam, as you do this work that I've given you, it will be another means of enjoying me and glorifying me. But Adam did not obey God. Adam disobeyed God. And that's our big problem. We have Adam's problem. We inherited the problem that he created when he disobeyed God. And we've added to it. So our theology uses terms like this. We've inherited his guilt of original sin and added to it our own actual transgressions. So we begin life separated from God the way Adam was separated from God when he disobeyed him. 
and we no longer have the one we are built to enjoy, and we no longer have the one we are built to glorify. And so we seek God's good gifts to consume them as though they were God himself. And we seek to make a contribution in a way that overcomes our sin, but it does not. It only adds to our longing and our separation. But there is one who speaks with greater authority even than the teacher in this passage. The teacher is modeling for us certainty about what is futile in life. But we read words from the gospel earlier where Jesus says, I am the one to whom God has given authority to judge. And you know what? Jesus says, here's the contribution that I make. I only do what the Father tells me to do, and I only say what the Father tells me to say. Jesus has lived in the way Adam was supposed to, and therefore Jesus should have been the one to enjoy perfect fulfillment. He should be the one to consume, so to speak, all the blessings of God because he obeyed God perfectly. But instead, what did Jesus experience in his time under the sun? He experienced suffering. And ultimately, he experienced suffering on a cross, an innocent man executed. But that's not all that was going on. He went to the cross willingly as a sacrifice for his people, the people he loved. The Bible says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And in fact, his life of obedience to God, he had also done that on behalf of his people. Jesus can make the contribution that we can't make. He has overcome the sins of his people. So that rather than receive the curse of having disobeyed God, they might enjoy his blessing and have the deep satisfaction for which they long. So this text in Ecclesiastes is going to teach us to do one of two things. It's meant to teach us one thing, but we're going to react to it and respond to it in one of two ways. Either we are going to say, all of life is futile. No one can tell me what is good for man to do in his short days. I will do the best I know how. And that leads further into darkness and deserves God's condemnation because it is ignoring his call. What the passage is meant to do is not to teach us that life is futile and just make the best of it. Instead, the passage is meant to cause us to cry out to the one who is beyond the sun and say, oh God, how can I wrestle with one who is greater than than me? I can't wrestle with this dynamic of being separated from you and overcome it. I need you to overcome it for me. Oh God, will you save me from this vanity? Will you save me from this meaningless? Will you save me from this dissatisfaction? Give me satisfaction in you. This is what Jesus says he came to do and does now. In just a few moments, we will reflect on 
what is meant to happen when we come to the Lord's table, what I hope you are looking forward to with eagerness when you will once again be able to return to the Lord's table. You are communing with one who is now reigning on your behalf so that you may have the fullness of the contribution he has made. There is a work that is completely done on the cross. Jesus did everything necessary for the guilt of your sin and its power to be broken. But there's a work that he continues to do, the Bible tells us, and that is that he is preparing his people to have the fullness of benefit of that. And so some of it happens even now in this life. You see, when we trust Christ to make us right with God, and we trust that he has provided by his spirit, a way for us to be something new, different than what we were. We actually have a contribution to make again. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Um, the man who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he actually had two books for us to read. And he starts off his second book by saying, in my first book, I wrote of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Christ had a ministry here on earth, and he continues that ministry now as he reigns in heaven, working by his spirit through the church. And that's what his apostles teach us as well, the ones he sent when he ascended to the Father. This is a good news for us. It means that our lives are not only about waiting for someday, but about experiencing the satisfaction that we were meant to experience now. Not fully, but truly. And as we approach eternity, we will find an increasing fullness as God's Holy Spirit changes us so that less and less we try to make his good gifts a replacement for him. And more and more we see God himself for the satisfaction of our longing souls. And instead of making a contribution of our own imagining, more and more we begin to obey God's word and love our neighbors in the manner that he's called us. And the Apostle Paul says this is a primary role of your elders. Right now you're seeking another elder to join you, a pastor, a teaching elder. The work of the elders that you have and of that elder is to equip you for works of ministry, Paul says in Ephesians. God has built us to contribute. God has built us to consume. But he's built us to do that in the manner that's consistent with his command. And when we trust Christ and submit ourselves to his spirit, we begin to enjoy that in increasing amount. The fancy word we have for that is sanctification is the word that's used. So let us be a people who hear those words to come. If we thirst to come to God and experience his grace and leave behind our own search for satisfaction, our own search to consume and contribute and attempt contentment, and to trust him and to know true satisfaction. May we be such a people as pray. Father, we thank you that your word is 
powerful and sufficient for our salvation, Paul says. Make us wise for salvation. And it teaches us how to live in this life. It teaches us to look to you. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for the way we so quickly brush you aside and put your gifts in your place as though they could save us, as though they could satisfy us fully and truly. Please forgive us our disobedience and our idolatry. Please help us to submit ourselves to you. We will only do this if you work in us by your spirit. So we ask that your spirit would give us faith and increase that faith. We conform us into the likeness of Christ Jesus, our Redeemer and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.